Welcome to Truth Triumphant Radio. I'm your host, Cody Mori, and today I wanted to talk about I wanted to talk about the sanctuary. I wanted to talk about the counterfeit sanctuary that has been set up over the years as Christians, originally the apostles, coming directly from the religion that that Jesus perfected. Um, we see really the slow but steady downfall and at times uh, coming coming back up to a certain degree and then dropping down usually further than it was before. And then you see, of course, the Reformation sort of start to turn things around again. But the reason why I want to talk about this and that the counterfeit sanctuary is because it 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 has occurred to me that the sanctuary itself and all, all of the all of the pieces of furniture that are within there and of course the feast days as well but everything in there means something it means something for the christian walk it's it's as the bible says in psalms thy way O god is in the sanctuary so god's way remember jesus says i am the way the truth and the life so when we study the sanctuary we begin to understand you know why things what things are important why they're important and uh, basically our our walk uh, with god because everything has a specific meaning and when you look at that and you think about that for a second and you see through history the different meanings that are behind the different pieces of furniture and how they've been, which is what I want to focus on today, really the, the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place in those those articles of furniture. I'm not really going to get into the feast days, don't have time to today, but I wanted to focus on, on those things because those are step-by-step. Step. If we understand the spiritual meaning of those things, those are step-by-step step pathway, literally, to the, and figuratively, to the throne of God. So... Um, I wanted to begin with a quote today. This is from a book called Darkness Before Dawn, and it's on page 36, Darkness Before Dawn. It says this, The people of God are directed to the scriptures as their safeguard against the influence of false teachers and the delusive power of spirits in darkness. of darkness. Satan employs every possible device to prevent men from obtaining a knowledge of the Bible, for its plain utterances reveal his deceptions. At every revival of God's work, the prince of evil is aroused to more intense activity. He is now putting forth his utmost efforts for a final struggle against Christ and his followers. The last great delusion is soon to open before us. Antichrist is to perform his marvelous works in our sight. So closely will the counterfeit resemble the true that it will be impossible to distinguish between them except by the holy scriptures. By their testimony, every statement and every miracle must be tested. 
Those who endeavor to obey, to obey all the commandments of God will be opposed and derided. They can stand only in God in order to endure the trial before them. They must understand the will of God as revealed in his word. They can honor him only as they have a right conception of his character, government, and purposes, and act in accordance with them. None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. To every soul will come the searching test. Shall I obey God rather than men? The decisive hour is even now at hand. Are our feet planted on the rock of God's immutable word? Are we prepared to stand firm in defense of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus? Very powerful quote there. Um, and I've seen the quote many times, but I'm just taking this one from a book entitled Darkness Before Dawn, uh, page 36. Okay, now, and exactly why am I doing this? Well, it sort of came about with a, a little bit of a study on the sanctuary I've done recently, coupled with my studies that I've been doing on the Antichrist showdown, which talk about the taking away of the daily by the Antichrist power, which we know to be the papacy. And of course, we could talk about that all day. I mean, we could talk about the different things going on with some of these secret societies and basically all these front organizations that that they push forward but in the end they're puppets and who are the puppet masters it is the jesuit order and you see that you see even with mesmerism when we looked at it a couple weeks ago the guy who basically invented it uh was jesuit trained adam weishaupt Founder of the Illuminati, Jesuit trained, um, taught at a Jesuit university. You know, Catholic countries back in the 1700s they banned these people. You don't get you don't get exiled by people that share the same faith as you and banished from their domain unless you're doing something really bad. I mean, there was it was Protestants against Catholics during the Reformation times. But even the Catholic countries thought, you know what, we better get rid of these Jesuits because they're getting involved in, and they cause they cause these movements that stuff that we're seeing right now before our very eyes, they cause these movements of division and meddling in the affairs of the state. And after that, you never heard anything about the Jesuits. They were officially removed by the papacy and then brought back into existence, I believe in 1814 by a different papacy. And there's a little bit more information that goes in there. But again, all these movements, whether it's communism, whether it's fascism, all these things that are going on, who is behind it all? It is all roads lead to Rome. It is the Roman Catholic Church. And we got to understand that. That's who the reformers taught was the Antichrist. In spite of all the things they disagreed with each other, that's something they could all agree on was who was the Antichrist power. The Antichrist power being the Roman Catholic Church system 
was part of the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1646, which was ratified by an act of parliament. So this is how seriously they, they believed this, that even the state acknowledged that the Antichrist power spoken of in the Bible was the papacy. So keeping all that in mind, you got to remember this is not this is human, but it's it's much more than human. It's there's a very very dark, wicked, evil, deceptive element to all this. And you got to remember when Lucifer does does something, he always counterfeits God. He wants to be the counterfeit God. He sets up his counterfeit son of God. He sets up the counterfeit Christ, in other words, or the papacy. He sets up a counterfeit Holy Spirit. He sets up everything that he does is basically an inversion of what God says to do. That's pretty much what he does. And the sanctuary is no exception. In fact, it's less of an exception than some other things would be. And again, the, re the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because a lot of these things came up, but also when we were looking at Smyrna, in the Daniel Revelation talks with Pastor Bill Hughes, we talked about how the reformers were sort of halfway men in that they never finished. A lot of them, a lot of them got stunted, you know, uh, and they didn't finish their work. And, and the generations after many times did not either. So it would always be some other group pushing the truth a little bit further. You know, you have you have the Lutherans in the beginning and the Calvinists, and then you have the Anabaptists pushing that the truth a little further because they sort of drop the ball there. And then you have the Methodist movement that comes out later later on than that, moving all the way down until you get to the Adventist movement. It just it happens over and over and over again. And when we look at this, what we're going to look at today. I think you'll be able to see what I'm talking about as well. So let's get started. The altar of burnt offering. The altar of burnt offering is the first piece of furniture that you walk into uh, when you go through the outer court. Now I'm, I'm, I'm excluding the door. I understand that I'm excluding a, a lot of other aspects, but I want to focus on just the, the, the furniture creations themselves. And, and, Again, there's a lot more to this, but just starting there, we have the altar of burnt offering. Now, what does that symbolize? Well, if you go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14, you'll understand that the, the altar of burnt offering represents the sacrifice of Christ. That's not hard for us to understand. I mean, John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So the, the altar of burnt offering is symbolic of the sacrifice of Christ or the beginning steps of any Christian's walk with God is the acceptance of that sacrifice. It's the cross. You know, you go to the cross and you accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's justification by faith. That's really what it is. I accept Jesus Christ by faith. Now, the Roman Catholic Church system replaced this with indulgences, with the Eucharist service, the Mass, which sacrifices Christ 
every day in their mass according to their doctrine rather than as Hebrews says that he was a sacrifice once and for all and also the sacraments can be part of that as well because it's a false justification process justification is by faith alone this was the one of the cornerstones this is one of the solas it's called sola fide by faith alone and then there was also sola gratia by grace alone so this is one of the teachings of the reformers this is the first push of the true light pushed back if you go to uh, canons concerning justification um, canon 24 of the Council of Trent and I'm going to be quoting from the Council of Trent a lot it says if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained but not the cause of its increase let him be an anathema so anathema basically means uh, destroyed damned so what they're saying is if you do not believe if you believe in other words that you are justified by faith alone and that God changes your heart, which is what the scripture teaches, and that you begin to do good works because faith without works is dead. But it's not because, or it's rather, it's because you're saved and not to save yourself. If you say that, if you believe that, you are, according to the Catholic Church, anathema, anathematized. Which is interesting because that means what they teach is that you actually do works to save yourself which is not justification by faith and it's certainly not righteousness by faith and it's certainly not by grace are you saved through faith and it is not of yourselves not by works lest any man should boast according to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 so there you have it right there but that's the outer court it's a direct this this premise this doctrine is a direct attack against one of the fundamental teachings of the sanctuary which is the altar of burnt offering and every day and there's a lot more that goes into the altar of burnt offering every day there was a burnt offering sacrifice so every day we were supposed to come to God and and be that living sacrifice um, daily you know in the morning and the evening but as we go through, we go to the laver, which is symbolic of baptism or purification. You can check out Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21, and compare that with Mark 1, 4, where John the Baptist is baptizing people for the remission of sins. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This is, this is the next step in the Christian's walk. You see, it's not finished at the cross. After, after you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're supposed to follow him into what is sometimes referenced as believer's baptism. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God sent him to die on a cross for your sins personally, that he's a personal Savior. Then you follow him 
in baptism. And this is something that Luther did not continue. This is one of the things that was continued through the great persecution of the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were persecuted by Catholics and Protestants. They were, they were killed. They were drowned in Zurich by none other than Ulrich Zwingli. One of the reformers and a great reformer, no less, not a great reformer, absolutely. But the Anabaptists were right about this, and they were they were understanding that doctrine of sola scriptura, and they took that that the teaching that God was attempting to restore, and they took it a little bit further. Again, if we go to the Council of Trent on this, and we read Canon 13, the Canons on Baptism, it says, if anyone says that children because they have not the act of believing, are not after having received baptism to be numbered among the faithful, and that for this reason are to be rebaptized when they have reached the years of discretion, or that it is better for that the baptism of such be omitted than that, while not believing by their own act, they should be baptized in the faith of the church alone. Let him be anathema. A little bit long-winded there, but basically what they're saying is if you don't believe in infant baptism, then you're damned, and you, you're lost, and you're confined to the lake of fire, essentially. Which is insane, because if you think about your personal walk with God, if you, you can't go to the laver of baptism before you go to the altar of burnt offering, can you? You can't just bypass that and go there. You have to go through the sanctuary as, it, as it's shown. And the, the, the altar of burnt offering is the first stop. So you accept Jesus Christ. An infant can't do that. And that was the argument that was being made, uh, even by many of the reformers, but not necessarily baptism by immersion, which is what the example that we have in the scriptures and that truth was restored by the Anabaptists. Now, after we get past the laver, we have the holy place. And in the holy place, we have, I mean, it depends on what you want to look at first, but we have the candlestick. Now, remember in Jesus' Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, that wonderful, wonderful sermon, he said that, you are the light of the world. Of course, he was the light of the world. But he said, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. Who lights a candlestick and then puts it under a bushel? So if we understand light to be um, basically witnessing or spreading the truth of God, you're letting your light shine as, as many times that we say um, in, in a Christian sense witnessing, spreading the gospel. Now think about the Roman Catholic version of spreading the gospel, at least in the Dark Ages. How did they spread the gospel in the Dark Ages? Well, they had two options. Convert or die. That was your options. Either you could convert, and Constantine was doing this too. Uh, you know, when they, throughout, basically throughout, from Constantine all the way throughout the Dark Ages, 
their evangelism process was convert or die. And if somebody, if you had a dissenter, if you had someone who believed something else, if you had someone who said, oh, I don't necessarily see that in scripture, even of their own people, they would be burned as heretics. That's why many of the these restorers of light that we're, we're seeing here, they were Catholics. They were Catholics themselves. At least they began that way. Next, our next one is the table of showbread. Now the table of showbread, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So the table of showbread is symbolic of the word of God and reading the word of God. And each and every one of us is to read and ingest the word of God ourselves. You know, it, it's, it's a very interesting example that's given the table of showbread. Because no one can eat food for you. You can't ask your husband or your wife to go eat some food on your behalf because you don't have time. You have to eat or you'll wither away yourself. Now, most people have a problem with, at least in America, with eating too much. But again, with this example, the table of showbread, the bread of life is an example of the word of God and nobody else can ingest that for you. So we have to be partaking of that ourselves. Now, how did the Roman Catholic Church, how did they treat the Word of God? Well, they, they placed the Bible itself as a forbidden book, not to be in the common language. And the reasoning that they gave for that is because people will twist and mis misinterpret it and use it for bad things. They also taught tradition over Scripture or the authority of the papacy over Scripture, the authority of the priests, etc., and they have all the apocryphal teachings within the book itself. And this is from uh, Canons Concerning Justification, Canon 12 of the Council of Trent. It says this, If anyone does not accept as sacred and canonical the aforesaid books in their entirety and with all their parts, as they have been accustomed to be read in the Catholic Church and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition, and knowingly and deliberately rejects the aforesaid traditions, let him be anathema. So essentially, if you reject books like Tobit and Judith and the books of Maccabees as being inspired, then you are damned. Now, th these are books that people have found to have errors, not only doctrinally, um, but just plain errors of history sometimes. So many of the reformers, including Martin Luther himself, uh, acknowledged that the Apocrypha were not inspired of God. So, and that's just one example. Of course, the Bible was forbidden and people like William Tyndale died because they were, they translate, he translated the New Testament and put it into the common language of English-speaking peoples. Now, next, after the table of showbread, we have the altar of incense. 
And on the altar of incense, we have prayers of the people and the merits of Christ. So you have the incense, which represents the merits of Christ, that was mingled with the coal from the altar of burnt offering. And the smoke that would ascend represented the prayers of God's people. Of course, mingled with that incense, mingled with the merits of Christ, that they can be perfected to come before the throne of God. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 8, verses 4, where it talks about the smoke of the incense uh, before God's throne ascending with the prayers of the people. So it's basically continual repentance and, and sanctification. It's intercession, the merits of Christ's prayer, uh, direct communion with God. Now, what was this replaced by with, by the Roman Catholic Church? It was replaced by the confessional and the merits of saints and the intercession of Mary, where anything, basically anything but Jesus Christ was an acceptable way of gaining intercession and praying to. This is from the Council of Trent again on canons concerning the most holy sacrament of penance. Canon 7 says, If anyone denies that sacramental confession was instituted by divine law or is necessary to salvation or says that the manner of confessing secretly to a priest alone with the Catholic Church has always observed from the beginning and still observes is at variance with the institu institution and command of Christ and is a human contrivance, let him be anathema. So basically, if you believe that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, as the Bible says, or if you believe 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess to Christ, not to a man, but to Christ. So when a man sits in a position where he's hearing the prayers of somebody and then he absolve, tries to absolve them himself, he's sitting literally in the place of Christ. That's an anti-Christ position. It's just interesting, isn't it, when you think about all this stuff? Because then now you're seeing now I see the way I look at it in my own mind. I see that step by step. Satan has has counterfeit and turned turned these beautiful messages that that are necessary, completely necessary for our salvation, and he's changed them and twisted them, and made them into a counterfeit version, which does not lead to salvation. And these are the things that the reformers were teaching against. They were beginning to bring that light back, and the altar of incense being restored and the burnt offering altar of burnt offering being restored and the labor being restored you know the understanding of baptism being restored the understanding of, of justification by faith alone being understood again the understanding of sanctification the altar of incense and the prayers directly to God himself and the merits of Christ and his intercession for us in the holy place and the understanding of how important it is for each and every one of us to, to ingest and read the Word of God ourselves.
and to witness, to evangelize, to let our light shine amongst uh, non-believers that we might we might draw them unto Christ. We see all those things that are necessary for the Christian walk and that have been hijacked by this other system. It just puts it so clearly in perspective that this system is by its very design made to be a deceptive destruction of people. And remember, after after the most or after the holy place, you get into the most holy place. And what is in the most holy place? The law of God. Now, did the Roman Catholic Church change the law of God? Of course. They changed it from the false Sabbath, or from they changed it to the false Sabbath, which is Sunday, from the true Sabbath, which is Saturday. This is from Johann Eck, written in 1533, but it's referencing 1518, I believe, a debate between Martin Luther and Johann Eck. It's called Enchiridion of Commonplaces Against Luther, page 78 and 79. There is no mention of the secession of the Sabbath and the institution of the Sunday in the Gospels or in Paul's writings or in all the Bible. This has taken place by the Apostolic Church instituting it without Scripture. Now, why would Johann Eck say that? Because he was arguing, he was debating, literally, with Martin Luther about whether it's sola scriptura or whether it's the traditions of the church. And this was one of his really great points that he made was that, Martin Luther, you keep Sunday. So you keep a tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. This was not instituted by the Bible. So that was one of the points that he actually made a solid point about and so each and every phase needs to be restored so as we go through history this is so amazing to me you see the lutherans take it a certain way you see the calvinists take the light a little further you see the anabaptists take it a little further you see the methodists take it a little further you know, and you keep seeing the light continue until it reaches the full restoration, which will be the restoration of justification by faith alone. The restoration of not only justification by faith alone, but also of true baptism by immersion. Not only of those things, but also of the word of God and reading it daily. Not only of that, but also of the prayers and merits of Jesus Christ and the true understanding of intercession. Not only those things, but also letting our light shine and being evangelistic in, in attitude and mind. But not only those things, but also the restoration of the law of God. You see, the, the reformers didn't finish the Reformation. That's why, and I think this is so beautiful because you can see that this work has been God's work over the ages here, these last 500 years. God has been restoring the hallmark truths of his sanctuary and what it means 
and all the false doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church has set up, he has been destroying with the spirit of his mouth, which is the Word of God. The Word of God shows us these things. And it's so beautiful to me to look back at Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, which says, And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And some renderings of that, the word there, doesn't just mean cleansed. It does. It definitely means cleansed. And it's important to understand that. And it's inter I believe it's interpreted right there. But it also means restored. And I think it means both here in this instance. Because Daniel asks a few different questions at once. But he gets one answer to all of those questions. And so, in a sense, the sanctuary shall be restored as well. And that is the 2300 day or year prophecy which ended in 1844. 1844, we had the Millerite movement. We had a great disappointment, just like the disciples had a great disappointment when they misunderstood the message that Christ was going to bring and what his, his actual life was going to be. They didn't understand his sacrifice. They didn't understand those things. Millerites basically fell into the same trap that they did. They had their own beliefs about what was supposed to happen. But nonetheless, after that, after that great disappointment, an understanding of the sanctuary was brought forth. And then an understanding of the Sabbath was brought forth and brought to view. And these things had been brought up numerous times in the past even in Martin Luther's day, as we see with Johann Eck, his enemy, but also one of his friends, Karlstadt, who brought up the, the idea of, of Sabbath and the restoration of it. And we see that God is bringing these things back. And he said by 1844, the sanctuary would be cleansed and it would be restored. And that's exactly what we see. I want to close with uh, just one more quote here from Mrs. White. Life Sketches of James and Ellen White, written in 1880, page 237 to 238. She says this, Jesus raised the cover of the ark, and I beheld the tables of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written. I was amazed as I saw the fourth commandment in the very center of the Ten Precepts, with a soft halo of light encircling it. Said the angel, it is only one of the ten which defines the living God who created the heavens and the earth and all things that are therein. When the foundations of the earth were laid, then was also laid the foundations of the Sabbath. I was shown that if the true Sabbath had been kept, there would never have been an infidel or an atheist. The observance of the Sabbath would have preserved the world from idolatry. The fourth commandment has been trampled upon. Therefore, we are called upon to repair the breach in the law and plead for the broken down Sabbath. If or the man of sin who exalted himself above God and thought to change times and laws brought about the change of the Sabbath from the seventh to the first day of the week. In doing this, he made a breach in the law of God. Just prior to the great day of judgment, a message is sent forth to warn the people to come back to their allegiance to the law of God, which Antichrist has broken down. A 
attention must be called to the breach in the law by precept and example. I saw that the third angel proclaiming the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus represents the people who received this message and raised the voice of warning to the world. To keep the commandments of God and his law is the apple of the eye. And that in response to this warning, many would embrace the Sabbath of the Lord. Amen. So, folks, we have to we have to make sure that we're being the reformers we've been called to be and that we destroy the counterfeit sanctuary and restore and rebuild the wall and restore the true sanctuary of God and everything that it means. Uh, wow, I'm sorry we went a little bit over time today, but I just wanted to get to those points. Um, we'll see you next week, God willing, and God bless you.